0: Hello and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and triathlete coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. There's been a lot of chatter recently about two sponsorship deals signed by the two largest governing bodies in our sport. First, just before the Ironman World Championships in Kona, the WTC announced a deal with the makers of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug Aleve. And then, just about a week ago, the USAT announced a deal with the manufacturer of a CBD product. This has led to a lot of commentary and questions by athletes as to whether or not these kinds of sponsorships are appropriate and what kinds of messages they send to youth who are participating. As you likely know, as a listener to this podcast, I've talked about both NSAIDs and CBD products in previous episodes and highlighted the lack of benefits as well as the potential risks they both can pose. Still, I recognize that triathlon is far from a mainstream sport, and that it's not as if there's a parade of big-name sponsors beating a path to the doorstep of either of these organizations. So you can imagine the debate that may have taken place internally at both WTC and USAT when these opportunities arose. I mean, it's not as if either of these groups are in any position to turn down this money, and yet in both cases it does kind of seem like making a deal with the devil. What does USAT do, for example, the next time someone tests positive for THC, and claims they were using a CBD product that turns out to contain THC not listed on the ingredients? Will WTC face a lawsuit if someone uses a leave and ends up with a stress fracture? It could be a bit of a slippery slope. Still, I keep coming back to the notion that I desperately want my sport to thrive and survive, and I recognize that to do so, sponsorships are necessary. Personally, I wasn't so happy to see a CBD product as a main sponsor of the SBT gravel race, but I understood the rationale, the same as I do here. Remember, for many of its early years, Ironman was sponsored by a beer. I'm not sure that we want to return to that kind of relationship either. So while I have problems with these deals, I recognize the need for them, and as always, I think that it's up to us, the athletes, to understand what's happening here. The sponsorship deals aren't necessarily an endorsement of the products, but a reality for a sport in need of funding And without a lot of options to get that. On the show today, I talked to two women who personify what it means to balance work and training in the most extraordinary ways. Elizabeth Sorensen and Beth Ashinsky are two medical students and Ironman athletes who have excelled in both facets of their busy lives in the most incredible ways. They manage to fit training around their work schedules and creative manners, and still have time for their important social connections. They are a testament to how anything is possible, if it is important enough, and both will join me to talk about how they have done it, as well as the challenges they have faced in doing so. The triathlete Rutao goes to the desert for the final segment of this year to provide a review and tips for how to plan your race at Ironman Arizona. My guest and I have both completed this popular and iconic race, and we'll have lots to say about it. First, though, I have a medical question to consider. Recently, I've seen an advertisement popping up on my Instagram feed for a device called the AeroFit. This is one of the latest in a series of similar apparatuses that have come to market over the past few years that purport to train your respiratory muscles and improve your breathing ability while racing. I was intrigued and wanted to learn if there was any benefit to this idea, so I looked into it and will share my findings with you. Coming up. As endurance athletes, we spend a lot of time training to build our capacity to perform over a longer and longer period of time in order to race at the distances that we choose, be it sprint or Ironman. If you're smart, you incorporate strength training into your regimen because as I've discussed at length on this show with various guests, strength training is vital to injury prevention, maintaining proper form and endurance. One of the muscle groups that we are generally not able to train effectively are the respiratory muscles, specifically the diaphragm and intercostal muscles, or the muscles between our ribs. These muscles contribute to our ability to breathe and are vitally important when performing exercise, as we need to be able to inhale large enough breaths to supply oxygen to our working muscles. Recently, I began to notice advertisements in my Instagram feed for a product called the AeroFit. This device is the latest in a string of devices that aim to address this gap by providing resistance to inspiration, thereby forcing the respiratory muscles to do more work and get stronger than they might otherwise. These devices all work pretty much the same way. They're either small items that you fit into your mouth or a mask that fits over your nose and mouth and provide resistance to airflow. The AeroFit adds smart technology to the mix, interacting with an app on your phone to give you more data and fancy graphs to look at. I was intrigued by this idea and wanted to see if there was any science to support the very big claims on the very slick AeroFit website, so I did some digging in the medical literature and here's what I found. First and foremost, let's consider why this is important. There are three theories to explain why respiratory muscle strength may have a role in athletic performance. The first relates to flow theft. Weaker respiratory muscles require higher blood flow and oxygen delivery than stronger respiratory muscles, and so a higher percentage of your cardiac output will go to the respiratory muscles than the limbs performing the work if your respiratory muscles are weak. The second theory compounds the first, and is called metaboreflex, wherein fatiguing respiratory muscles begin to accumulate lactate and other metabolites that trigger an increase in sympathetic tone, which constricts blood vessels in the limbs to further increase flow to the respiratory muscles and lead to increased fatigue of the limb muscles. And the third and final theory relates to the perception of respiratory muscle fatigue that can result in a decrease in exercise output in order to alleviate the feeling of shortness of breath. All of these theories have borne out to some degree or another, but the question of their relative importance to exercise performance is not entirely clear. Still, many studies have been done on inspiratory muscle training, and I came across a few meta-analyses and review articles, all of which found pretty consistent results and had fairly similar conclusions. I think the most important thing to note in these studies is that exercise alone has been shown to improve respiratory muscle strength and endurance, and this really shouldn't come as much of a surprise. When you first begin training, it isn't all that uncommon to feel short of breath at even fairly low levels of exertion, but as you continue with your training and become stronger and faster and gain endurance, you could do more with less difficulty breathing. Well, the reason for this is not just because in training you're improving your limb muscle strength and endurance, but you're also training your respiratory muscles to do more work as well. Now, all of the studies on inspiratory muscle training showed that using a flow resistor resulted in improved inspiratory muscle strength and endurance when compared to not using one. But the degree of this effect was different depending on the level of training you started with. In all except one study that I came across, it was reported that the more fit you were, the less benefit you saw with these devices in terms of gains in respiratory muscle strength and endurance. One study I found did suggest that it didn't matter how trained you were and that the benefit was the same for all, but this was pretty much an outlier. So this sounds great, but what about performance? Because it's all fine and dandy to have improved respiratory muscle you know, strength and endurance, but if it doesn't actually translate to improved athletic performance, then does it really matter? Well, many studies have shown that for short-duration sprinting-type activities, or for time-trial-type activities of about half an hour, performance is actually, in fact, improved with the use of these devices in training. However, there are several caveats to be considered when interpreting that statement. First and foremost, these results tended to be applicable only to people who had no or very little training beforehand. In people coming into the studies already well-trained, improvements in inspiratory muscle performance did not translate to improved performance. In addition, these benefits, when they were there, tended to fade over time. When compared to 30 days, people who did moderate-level training with inspiratory muscle training had improved performance compared to those who did moderate-level training without the inspiratory muscle training. But this performance effect disappeared by six months, even though the athletes in the inspiratory muscle training group maintained their advantage of improved inspiratory muscle strength and endurance over the non-trained group. Furthermore, the effects on performance when they were seen were pretty much sport-specific. For example, rowers and athletes performing high-intensity interval-type training or low-level endurance activities under load for example, marching with a heavy rucksack, showed some continued improvement when they used inspiratory muscle training over those who didn't. However, swimmers, cyclists, and runners showed no benefit whatsoever, despite the improvements in their inspiratory muscle strength and endurance. Now, it isn't completely clear why these disparities exist, Why is it that inspiratory muscle training is beneficial in some sports and not to others? And why do improvements in inspiratory muscle strength and endurance not translate to continued improvements in athletic performance? Alas, such is science, where theories explain much but often predict little. To summarize then, training the inspiratory muscles by using a flow-resistance device has benefits mostly for less-fit individuals and for those participating in specific sports such as rowing or high-intensity intervals. The improvements in inspiratory muscle strength and endurance is long-lasting over those who do not use this training, but the performance benefits tend to disappear by six months. So how does this compare to the claims of the makers of the AeroFit, which is a $274 device that is an inspiratory muscle trainer? As you might imagine, there is some degree of disparity between what they claim and the reality and the scientific findings. Now the first claim of the AeroFit site is that by using their device you can improve lung mechanics, specifically your lung vital capacity, or the maximum amount of volume that your lungs can inhale. I want to be absolutely clear about this. This claim is utterly and completely false, and is factually disputed by every study that I could find on this matter. In fact, authors of many studies have gone out of their way to report that the use of these devices results in no changes whatsoever on lung mechanics, including vital capacity. So AeroFit not off to a great start. The second claim on the site is that the use of AeroFit can improve respiratory muscle strength and endurance. While I have found no studies particular to this specific device, I have no reason to think that it's any different than any of the other devices out there, so this is likely true. However, on the same page, AeroFit goes on to claim that there are studies demonstrating performance benefits of this kind of training, specifically to cycling and running. And as you now know, that's simply not true. The third claim on the site, relates to improved anaerobic tolerance, and this is just plain nonsense. There is no published research anywhere on this, and these claims are simply not supported by any basic physiology. The gobbledygook on the site page wherein they try to explain how the device achieves this also really makes no sense. The last of the claims on the website relates to some supposed psychological benefits you can get from using the AeroFit and being able to take deep breaths when faced with stressful situations so as to be able to perform at your best. I honestly don't know what this is all about, and I'm not going to comment on it, except to say that deep breaths never really hurt anyone, but I'm not sure that you need to spend $274 to be able to get this benefit. So, to sum up, inspiratory muscle training does in fact work to improve inspiratory muscle strength and endurance, but its translation to performance is not really relevant to most triathletes and doesn't last very long. My advice here, save your money and breathe easier. Do you have a question for me to answer on the podcast? send it to me at T-R-I underscore D-O-C at iCloud.com. My conversation with my guests for today's podcast was really interesting and entertaining. And because of that, it also went really long. As a result, I've decided to split it over two episodes. Here then is part one of my conversation with Elizabeth Sorensen and Beth Iszynski. Training for triathlon, especially for the longer distances like 70.3 and Ironman, can be a major endeavor. The commitment that athletes must make in undertaking these kinds of races can seem daunting and indeed insurmountable to many, and it likely keeps a lot of people from getting into the sport in the first place. Others will stick to shorter distance, believing that these are easier to train for and won't become all-consuming. But then there are those who feel the allure of racing those longer distances and who aren't satisfied by the short course offerings. Well, I'm excited to be joined by two women who have stared down this challenge and managed to succeed with long-distance triathlon in incredible ways, and while doing so, balance busy lives as medical students and maintain their social relationships. Beth was an avid athlete growing up in Westchester County, New York, where she played multiple field sports. While in college playing soccer, she sustained multiple knee injuries requiring surgery, and it was through that process that she developed a keen interest in pursuing a career in medicine and specifically in orthopedics. After college, Beth moved to Baltimore, where she took a lab research position as a fellow at the National Institutes of Health, and she picked up long-distance running as a way to stay fit while in the lab. She swam with the master's team for cross-training, and then decided on a whim to buy a road bike and do an Ironman in 2014, without any previous triathlon experience. While Beth was in the lab, she balancing studied for the MCAT, which is the medical college admission test, applying to medical school, publishing numerous first-authored scientific papers, as well as waking up at 4 a.m. to swim, bike, or run. As a last-minute decision, Beth registered for Ironman Syracuse 70.3, and the next month she crossed the finish line at Ironman Lake Placid and was then hooked. She's currently an MD-PhD student in Philadelphia, where she continues to train under her coach Alyssa Alyssa Godeski, and performs exceptionally well at races, including multiple age group podium spots at both the 70.3 and Ironman distances, most recently at last month's Ironman Maryland, where she finished fifth in a sprint for the final podium spot over my second guest. Elizabeth Sorensen was an undergraduate at Wheaton, where she double majored in theology and health sciences, and ran Division Three cross-country and track. As an undergraduate, she developed an interest in sports medicine and sports performance research, but spent the majority of her extracurricular time invested in community service. She volunteered at the medical clinic of a homeless shelter in Chicago, and even spent a month living in the shelter in order to form relationships with the people staying there. She also volunteered at a nursing home, as well as a free medical clinic for the uninsured. During the summer, after being accepted to Stony Brook Medical School in New York, Elizabeth signed up for a sprint triathlon and, much to her surprise, finished first in her age group and as the fifth female overall, even though she raced on a bike that she borrowed from her mom. She continued to compete in sprint and Olympic triathlons during her first year of medical school, and during her second year found herself with some more time as the academic demands lightened, and so she decided to try her hand at a 703 like Beth, after her first seventy-point-three, Elizabeth was hooked on long triathlon. Since that time, Elizabeth has several podium finishes to her name at both the seventy-point-three and Ironman distances, and just last month finished sixth at that aforementioned sprint at Ironman Maryland. These two incredibly accomplished women have graciously agreed to join me today on the TriDoc podcast. Welcome to both of you, Beth and Elizabeth.
1: It's good to be here. Great to be here. <laughs>
0: I want to first apologize for condensing the bios that both of you sent me. I'd honestly want to read them both exactly how you wrote them because you are really quite remarkable individuals both on the course and off, but I'm afraid that would have used up this entire segment. Um, One of the first things that I remember remarking to Elizabeth when we first met via Instagram was how impressed I was at the discipline and motivation that she had to continue to get all of the training done while going through medical school. I'd like to hear from both of you how you've managed this and how you keep things in balance. And why don't we start with Elisabeth?
1: Uh Sure. Um, so I'm not really sure that I have any magic formula for making it happen in terms of balancing both things that are kind of huge undertakings so much as I love, absolutely love long distance triathlon. And I knew it wasn't something that I was ready to give up during my clinical year of med school. So I kind of just made a commitment to myself to make it work, Um, even though logistically I knew it was going to be difficult. It was worth it to me to try to figure out how to make it happen. Um, So that being said, um, I feel that I had to really just learn efficiency with the limited time that I did have. Um, So I found there was a lot of downtime while I was actually at the hospital on my clinical rotations. Um, So actually, let me back up a bit and explain um, kind of for people who are less familiar with how um, the medical education works. um, In your third year, you do clinical rotations in which you're in the hospital um, typically for about eight to 10 hours a day um, shadowing and also seeing patients on your own and getting familiar with kind of how, um, um, how med- medicine works, um, on the ground in a practical way. And on top of that, you're responsible for studying to take a shelf exam at the end of each rotation, um, So what most students do is they spend those allocated hours in the clinic and they come home and um, they find themselves spending the rest of the evening studying. Um, So it's definitely a very intense year in which you're kind of all invested in learning medicine and either being in the hospital learning it or being at home studying it on your own. Um, And um, I found what worked for me was trying to condense the studying into um, kind of lapses in time uh, or breaks in time in the hospital. So, for instance, um, I found that the time in which I was actually engaged on rounds or um, presenting a patient or seeing a patient, a lot of the times med students kind of find themselves standing around while, um, the attendings are writing their notes. Um, and I found this is a great time to kind of pull out my own study materials and get studying done on the floors. Um,
0: okay. That's a level of efficiency that I like (laughs) never had.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I kind of found that, um, like a couple minutes of, um, Small pockets of time here and there, even if it's just five minutes, I can pull out my phone and I can get one practice MVME question done, and that's just one less that I have to do later that evening. Um, so I kind of came to see studying as something that can get done throughout the day without having to, um, sit down and have it done all at once, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I just, uh, I can't imagine doing <laughs> it myself. Uh, how about you, Beth? What was, uh, what's been your approach um, to keeping a balance?
2: So I am not quite at my clinical years yet, but I will speak to something along similar lines in that I've always, like, since playing, um, high school soccer and trying to get recruited for college. Like I was always in the car. I was always traveling to some sort of event, a tournament. um, And I always had to study or do my homework in the car. And so when I was at practice, I was at practice. And that's where um, all my energy went to. And the same thing in college. Like we were constantly traveling for games. And then when I moved on to a more individual, like an independent sport, triathlon, um, it sort of posed my own freedom to dictate my own schedule. But that being said, um, I think I was just so accustomed to, um, compartmentalizing these sorts of things. And, um, I would wake up in the morning and that was my swim bike, or run runtime. I would be in the lab. That was my lab time. When I'm home, whether I'm studying or I'm training, like, I just think that if you have that compartmentalization aspect in your mind, then I don't
0: know. You can succeed at pretty much anything. That's that's showing a level of maturity in high school that uh, is quite remarkable, and continuing it on into medical school to be successful by, as you say, compartmentalizing and really taking advantage of every free moment, like you were describing, Elizabeth. That's that's really impressive. Mm-hmm. So so kudos to both of you. Now, for many of my listeners who are hearing this they may only be starting to get a sense of what it is that you're both doing uh, at the level of a day-to-day sort of basic. So I'd love for each of you to kind of walk me through what a typical day looks like. You've sort of alluded to it a little bit, Elizabeth, but if you could both sort of give me a sense of what a day looks like in terms of your training your work and and of course your social life too because i think a lot of people think that if they're getting into iron man or 70.3 especially if they've got a very difficult job that they're going to have to give up something so i'd like to hear how you both do mm-hmm. that why don't you start beth
2: yeah um let me just take you through like a quick monday through sunday sure uh, day in the life so monday i would say is my like active rest or full rest day so that's a day where I would sleep in a little bit later, maybe to like six, get to the pool around seven, do, I don't know, anywhere from, if I'm in an iron, if I'm building for an Ironman, four to 5,000. And then Tuesday, we start building stuff back up slowly. So I'll have a double workout day. Um, in the morning, I'll do either a run or a bike and evening, vice versa. So during the day, I work in a lab. And so that, you know, in medical school, you're in the hospital on a uh attending physician's time. In a lab, you're sort of on your own time. You finish, you come into the lab when you feel, you go to your meetings, get out when you've done with your work or your experiments for the day. So this PhD year that I'm in right now um, has given me a lot of freedom to build my own schedule. So I would come home. Uh, My fiance and my dog will be there. My fiance does not do Ironman. He uh, runs leisurely. So he's all into it. He just lets me do whatever I want. He, you know, it doesn't really affect our social lives uh, too much during the week. Then Wednesday is the same thing, a double workout. Thursday, a double workout. Um, Friday, usually a single workout building into like a like a harder, longer run um, for the weekend. So then Saturday would be a long swim in the morning. And then, you know, high Ironman build up to 100 mile bike. And so this I'm out all day. Um, I do not see my fiance pretty much all Saturday until the evening. Um, I come home, he will make me dinner, and dinner is ready, and we enjoy our evening, and it's pretty much amazing. And then sa- Sunday, uh, pretty similar routine, except this time, either a very long run or two moderate to long runs, one in the morning and one at night.
0: Okay, so- busy, busy life there. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that. I know that life. So I, I mean. Just, I, you know, I'm not going to get into my own sort of schedule, but I, I have to throw family on top of that because I've got kids. Yes. So,
1: <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I'm, well I'm
0: well aware of what you're describing. Elizabeth, what does what a typical day look
1: like for you? Um, so, I think one thing about this year is there has been no such thing as a typical day um, just because... Each rotation, the schedule has been a little bit different in terms of what time we have to be to the hospital as early as 4.30 a.m. for surgery or as late as um, 9 a.m. for psychiatry or primary care. Um, And it's kind of been a juggling act of trying to figure out what windows I have, what pockets of time I have on each rotation to get my training done. Um, but I guess, um, I can kind of walk you through what I did on my psychiatry rotation. Cause that's, um, I think maybe the best example. Sure. Um, so the hours for that were nine to five. Um, so I would wake up at around five or five thirty um, and get in a morning workout, either a session on the trainer or on the track. Um, and then I would take the train to the hospital and study on the train. So I'd get in a half hour of studying or so on the train and then I'd be in the hospital from nine to five. Um, and then it would be about a half hour wait for the train and another half hour ride home. So I would get another hour of studying done then. Um, so at that point I would have gotten about an hour and a half to two hours of studying done. And I would call my studying for the day complete Um, I'd get home around 5.30 or 6.00 and at that point have about a two-hour training session, either swimming or biking or running, um, and then try to get to bed um, and spend some time with my family as well. So I lived with my parents this year, um, so I'd spend time with them. um, And my boyfriend is a resident um, who lives nearby as well, so often he'd come over. And if there was downtime, we would play card games um, and then... On the weekends, um, I try to get my long run done um, either Wednesday evening or, or Friday evening so that I could have both weekend ev- both weekend days available for a long ride um, since th- those are really the only days where I had large chunks of time. Um, so Saturdays and Sundays were mostly devoted to training um, with some studying as well. I found that I actually started my long rides in the afternoon, which is a little bit atypical for triathletes. They tend to get up early and start their long bricks at like five or six in the morning. But I preferred to sleep in, catch up on sleep, and then get my studying done for the day before I went out on my long ride because I found I was mentally fresher before kind of the physical exertion of getting that long ride or long run in, um, And on Sundays, I would go to church and spend time with uh, my older brother and my nieces. Um, So I definitely still had time to spend with my family. And I also would make plans to train with my friends. Um, And I wouldn't say that I spent a lot of social time with friends outside of really triathlon training with um, my triathlon friends or seeing my boyfriend or my family Um, so I did still have a bit of a social life, but I don't want to lie and say that I had tons of time on my hand to hang out with my friends.
0: Yeah, no, and I mean, I'm hearing from both of you things that are very similar to my own experience, which is, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of dedication, a tremendous amount of commitment. Um, you have to be remarkably efficient. One of the things that mm-hmm. I find uh, as a physician on the other side, uh, you know, I've done what you guys have done. I've done the residency, and I, I really only got into on afterwards when I was an attending and had say, a little more of a cush life. Um, You know, one of the things that I struggle with is fatigue. Um, I, Mm -hmm. you know, my schedule is much more difficult than a typical Ironman athlete's schedule. Uh, I have overnight shifts that I have to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have to work around not only my job, not only uh, squeezing my training in, but I also have a family, and I, I work very hard to make sure my training doesn't impose on them. And what that ends up doing is, putting me in a position where I'm often training when I'm fatigued. And I imagine that's probably the same mm-hmm. for both of you. And I'm just curious how you try to balance that and how you try to make the most of your training sessions when you're doing so in a somewhat fatigued state, but knowing that that's really the best you've got because of, you know, your mm-hmm. what you do. Elisa Beth, why
1: don't you start with that one? Sure. So I think for one thing, I've... Um, had to just give myself grace in terms of sleeping when I need to sleep. It's very difficult at times to wake up at 9 a.m. on a Saturday and know that the majority of the people who are training have already gotten 30 or 40 miles of their long run ticked, or long ride, I should say, ticked off, and I'm just waking up. Um, but I think I really had to have grace with myself and realize that, um, I'm only human and I need sleep and I haven't slept enough during the weekdays. So I need to take advantage of um, the opportunity to catch up on sleep on the weekends. Um, And I think at times I've also had to just adjust my expectations when I'm super tired. Um, I remember there was one long run in particular where my coach had assigned me Um, pace ranges for each of the miles that she wanted me to hit and I was on my surgery rotation and it just had a super exhausting physically and mentally exhausting week and I ended up adjusting those paces to about one minute per mile slower than what she had given me but I just knew that I didn't have it in me to hit the paces I was supposed to without just completely um, breaking my body down beyond what I could do.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And Beth, what about you? How do you deal with the um, fatigue and having to train when you're yeah. tired?
2: I definitely have to um, decide whether my fatigue is due to a lack of sleep or due to a lack of increasing my training because I definitely um, prioritize going to bed at, I'm not going to lie to you, 8 p.m. Like, 8 p.m. <laughs> is, I, I hop into my bed, I wind down, and I go to sleep because I've, I've, I'm waking up at, you know, in the fours in the morning, like, there's just no way I can get anything less than that. But uh, I will say that um, towards this last Ironman Man build, I think my coach was expecting a little bit more out of me physically. So my workouts were putting me um, at more of like a muscular fatigue. And I think that is something I had to check in with myself in the workout and say, okay, am I tired? Because, you know, I have done a lot this week physically, or because I didn't sleep well last night. And I think when it's, um, I didn't sleep well last night, I'm a little bit I guess more motivated to get the workout done with, so I can be done with it. And then I think it makes it a little bit more challenging when you're physical when you're physically unable to hit those paces, and you have to manage your expectations for that workout. So yeah, I would say it's definitely about checking in.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, one of the big barriers for entry to triathlon remains the cost of the sport. Um, Mm. the equipment is, you know, it's not cheap, uh, bikes, especially Mm -hmm. today's super bikes are very expensive. The races themselves aren't inexpensive, especially when you factor in travel and accommodation. I'm, I'm curious how you both have managed to negotiate this while managing on the budget of a student. Beth, why don't you take that one first?
2: Yeah. So I'm actually in the MD PhD program, um, your tuition remitted, um, and you get a stipend. So I live off of very little money, but, um, I also don't, um, live off of student loans. So, um, it does make things a little bit easier in that sense. However, um, when I was beginning, I was, a, a laboratory worker, I guess, um, on that type of salary. And so I did not make that much, but my parents definitely helped me, um, pay for my bike initially. Um, but I think once you have all of like, you put in your investments and you have that base level of your tri bike, your aero helmet, (laughs) all of your outfits and things like that, once you have everything established, I think, um, you can sort of budget yourself. Like I don't, I don't treat myself to shopping sprees for, you know, makeup or clothes that other girls might say is an indulgence. Like, my indulgence is yeah, my but you've got my, the fanciest garment. <laughs> 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 I shop a lot on Amazon. I never buy anything at full price. That's just, like, my MO in life. And so I will spend a few days looking for an item and try and – if I'm fixated on it, I will try and find the best deal I can. I'm not opposed to eBay. Like, definitely got my Air helmet off of eBay, so –
0: <laughs> no shame in any of that elizabeth how about you how do you manage the expense of the sport especially getting into it initially with uh, student yeah. budget
1: mm-hmm. so i'm very fortunate in that my parents also helped me with the entry into the sport they helped me to buy my tri bike um and kind of the initial costs of getting set up um i um like beth kind of echo those comments of not um, really spending um, in other areas I never eat out um, I never really buy clothes unless they're um, really discounted or secondhand yeah. mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, I don't spend money on makeup makeup or anything like that um, and I think I also at times, settle for kind of secondhand try equipment. I get, I bought my arrow helmet for like $30 off of, um, the try and sell it Facebook page. Um, and unfortunately I tried to, I tried to compromise on the quality of my trainer. I had bought a $40 trainer off of Amazon, which ended up costing me dearly when I fell and dislocated my elbow. But um, thankfully, my parents helped me to get a better quality trainer. So um, yeah, I think it's just a combination of good fortune to have supportive parents and then also um, needing to cut back on expenses in other areas.
0: That concludes part one of my conversation with uh, Elizabeth and Beth. You can hear the second part on the next episode of the Doc Podcast. And now it's time for the Triathlete Uttar, that segment of the show, when I'm joined by a guest to discuss, review, and give a sort of travel guide to one of the popular races on the WTC circuit. For today's episode, we will be visiting the late-season desert race of Ironman Arizona, And joining me for the discussion is my good friend and sometime training partner, Michelle Hildebrand. Michelle is a multiple podium finisher in both the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 distances, and has qualified for both the 70.3 World Championships numerous times, and for the Ironman Championships twice, racing in Kona the last time just a few short weeks ago. Her qualification for Kona actually came at the 2018 Ironman Arizona, and she'll be returning to Tempe in just a couple of weeks to take on this popular race once again. For now, though, she has been gently coerced to take a break from her training and join me for a discussion of this iconic race. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, so we always start this discussion with uh, a question about how popular this race is. Is it one that signs up very quickly? Uh, Is it one that you can wait on to uh, pull the trigger? How fast do you need to consider this one?
3: So I'd say years ago, you had to go down and volunteer and certainly be kind of ready to go to sign up immediately. But it seems like in the last couple of years, it's slowed down a little bit in terms of registration. So you've got a few days, even to a week, to get signed up for Arizona now.
0: Yeah, and that was something I noticed as well. Um, I raced this in 2012, and I was online the second it uh, opened up. And within 60 seconds, it was full, and I missed my chance, and I had to go with... What's his group? Uh, I think you've gone with him before. Endurance Sports, Endurance Travel. sports Travel. And yep. I ended up getting a slot that way, which was a little bit more expensive, but at least I got my slot. And uh, I have heard exactly what you just described is that it now uh, takes a little bit longer, but it does still sell out. So you can't wait too long.
3: Exactly. It does still sell out, and it's probably one of the largest Ironman fields in the U.S. I think there's over 3,000 people this year hmm. on the bib list, so quite a big group will be down there in a couple of weeks.
0: All right. Uh, let's talk about travel and gear transport considerations. Uh, getting to uh, Tempe is fairly simple. Uh, It's a suburb of Phoenix, right?
3: Yep, exactly. So I live in Denver, so flying down from there is just a couple-hour flight, pretty easy, lots of different carrier options. Um, So the flights are certainly easy. There's lots of Airbnbs, different hotels kind of nearby, and We actually just booked our accommodation about a month ago and got uh, an Airbnb kind of right near the race site. So um, really easy from that perspective. And then in terms of taking bikes down, again, living in Denver, we have the luxury of having Pro Bike Express here. Who drives all of our bikes down, so we drop them on a Tuesday morning in Denver at a bike shop nearby, and then they show up down there by Thursday, which is great.
0: And Wes does a great job. He uh, services uh, the whole front range. I know he picks up bikes in uh, Boulder, Golden, Denver, and Colorado Springs.
3: And then even Utah, actually, he'll swing through. Yeah, I
0: think he swings through Utah on his way. And uh, he services quite a few races during the year, so Pro Bike Express is definitely worth checking out. I know also Tri Bike Transport also services this race, so two uh, good options uh, if you're uh, coming from outside of the uh, front range area and then of course uh, Pro Bike Express if you're in the states we mentioned. Um, In terms of, uh, I just want to go back to the Airbnb, Um, I know a lot of uh, cities that host Ironmans have issues with, you know, the Accommodations really like raise their prices and have mandatory minimum stays around races. Is that the case with this race?
3: I have not found that to be the case. Um, last year, when I raced Arizona, we booked only probably four weeks before the race, and this year we booked maybe six or seven weeks ahead of time. And both times, we were able to get a, a condo for just four nights. Um, And I'd say the kind of advertised rate is less than a hundred dollars a night, plus the fees and such. It adds up a little bit, but um, that certainly is pretty affordable, especially if you compare it to some of the other races like Placid that are really expensive to go to and stay at.
0: Yeah, and it's a really good time for this race because mm-hmm. it's uh, the week before Thanksgiving. Uh, there are tons of places that a lot of snowbirds keep, and they haven't gone down there yet for the winter, so there's yep. generally a lot of places that are available, which is great. For sure. Is there any reason to get there earlier than a couple of days before the race? Uh, I know that you know, the Phoenix area isn't necessarily a huge tourist destination, but uh, would you, you know, recommend taking the family or you know, going down earlier?
3: I think it really depends on the athlete. Um, I'd say typically if I'm going to a race site that I don't know very well um, and it's an important race to me, I'll try and go down typically kind of the Wednesday before a Sunday race. Um, But the two times I've raced Arizona now, I've done some other races during the year and just honestly was crunched on vacation time from work. So I've gone down on Thursday and it's a pretty straightforward venue in terms of just one transition area. And again, everything's super close by in terms of accommodation. So I think that's plenty of time, um, in terms of other things to do in the area. I'm sure there are, but honestly, I haven't really explored that part of it. I've just kind of been down there, um, in and
0: out for the race. Is there any reason to get there, to see anything, to familiarize with the course? I know when I was there in 2012 when I did the race, I actually liked doing uh, the early part of the bike course, just the part up to the beeline, because I know it was a little bit tricky. I don't know that I had to do it, because it was actually really well marked on race day. Um, I don't remember. Is there a practice swim available? There is a practice swim the
3: day before, and um, the water in Tempe is pretty cold or in Arizona, I guess, for the race is really cold. Last year, it was below 60. I'd say they advertised it at 60, but felt pretty darn cold to me. So it was good for me to do the practice swim the day before, um, just to be comfortable with kind of that shock of getting in the water and, you know, make that final decision of, am I going to wear two swim caps? Do I need earplugs? Um, those kind of things. So I think definitely doing the practice swim is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the bike course, I personally didn't ride any of the bike course. Um, there are a couple of turns, like you said, kind of getting out of town onto the beeline. line. Um, so I did drive it in my car, but um, yeah. I don't see a real need to ride it. And there can be some traffic on that first part. So I, I personally try to avoid roads with, with a lot of cars on them, especially in areas that I don't know very well.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, turn our attention to the course. Uh, let's begin with the swim. It uh, takes place in the Tempe Town Lake, which is a generous name for what the body of water actually is, which yep. is a somewhat stagnant reservoir. I, I feel like that body of water gets a bad rep. I don't know if people talk about it as being this horrible body of water i didn't find it particularly any worse pollution wise than anything else i've been in
2: well
3: we're used to boulder res so it really wasn't any worse i mean certainly you can't see your hand in front of your face but besides that i didn't find it that bad yeah um didn't have a bad smell or bad taste to it it was fine
0: yeah uh cold as you mentioned Yep. um Rolling start. When I did it, it was a mass start and it was horrible because it was, mm-hmm. it was 3000 people, as you mentioned, in a very tight quarters. And I just remembered being a terrible start, but now it's a rolling start. So yep. describe how it starts because it's deep water. So I think you have to jump off a dock. So, so talk um, a there's bit actually about
3: ramps and, and I will say they have changed the swim start from last year. Oh. So last year the swim was a clockwise swim. Okay. Um, and you kind of had to walk maybe a quarter mile down to get into kind of the the start where the rolling groupings were. Um, this year they've switched it, so now it will be a counterclockwise swim, which depends on which side you breathe. For me, it's actually a good thing. Um, I believe the reason they made the change was to make the longest portion of the swim away from the sun, um, which will certainly be a help. Um, but the Downside of that is now that the the run out um, from the water into T1 is, I think, 0.4 miles, so Mm. quite a lengthy run. Um, Last year, it was still a long run, but it was just the other way, and um, I would say last year, only portions of it were carpeted, and it was certainly slippery. Um, and having a cold swim when everyone's feet are a little bit numb, it, it was a little sketchy yeah. running up to it. But I have heard for seventy point three this year, they did put carpet down the whole way, and it was that same run out of the water. So I'm optimistic that it will be covered with carpet this year for that for that run. But I think depending on you know someone's intentions for the race, um, if someone is is really just there for their first Ironman or just kind of looking to have a good good solid day, but not truly racing it, it might be an option to put some shoes at the swim out Um, but for those that are truly racing I think you just got to suck it up a little bit and take that long run barefoot on some cold feet
0: yeah and uh, that's different from when I did it so uh, that's good to know Um, there's changing tents right there swims uh, wetsuit strippers I imagine yep wetsuit strippers
3: changing tents kind of all the typical Ironman stuff and um, the changing tents and, and the bikes, bike racks and all that are all really close. So once you do get to the transition area, it's pretty quick from that perspective.
0: Okay, so I um, went on to the bike course. Let's talk a little bit about that. It's a three lap course. Um, my recollection was that the first lap was fantastic. Uh, the uh, the next two laps were a little more sketchy. But uh, let's just talk about the, the laps themselves. And then we'll talk about the crowding. But um, Pretty flat to start and then kind of a gradual rolling uphill to the turnaround and then really fast on the way back to town.
3: Yeah, I'd say that's typically the way it rolls. It depends, obviously, how the wind is. Um, in terms of how fast that descent is going to be or how annoying that climb is going to be. But as you mentioned, kind of coming out of transition, there's a couple of turns just to kind of get out of town. Um, and certainly the roads are a little bit rougher that first couple of miles right near town. But once you get out closer to beeline, um, the roads are much smoother and it really just becomes kind of that that gradual climb um, up up to the turnaround. And just so everyone knows, you know, when you crest that, top of the climb, there is a brief little downhill before you turn around that you've got to kind of come back up and over before you start the descent. Um, And as you mentioned, Jeff, you know, that first lap is pretty smooth sailing, Um, but then once you get to the second and third lap, there certainly is a lot of traffic. Um, it's, it's just a lot of athletes on a three loop Ironman course. Um, so certainly be very careful kind of going through, um, aid stations and special.
0: I don't remember any other major sort of danger points. It's certainly nice. The three lap thing is certainly nice to sort of like help you with your pacing. And it's great to see anybody who's there spectating because you come by them so many times. Mm -hmm. Um, any danger points that you remember other than that?
3: I don't remember any danger points. I think just from a pacing perspective, you know, it's one of those courses where you want to kind of build lap to lap, and it, it's really easy to do with that three-lap course. Yeah. Um, you know, there certainly were people out there who were kind of burning too many matches on that first lap and paid for it later. So it's a, it's a nice course for that first lap just to go nice and easy build through the second lap and then kind of push a bit more on that third lap coming home.
0: Yeah. And it's funny if you're spectating and you're watching on the tracker uh, and you will see like people will be going up the B line. And usually the wind is, is in such a way that it's a little bit tougher going uphill than coming back down. And you'll yep. see people's speeds and you'll be like, what is going on? They're going so slow. And then they'll be coming back so fast. And then they'll head back out and you're just like, oh, they're dying because they're going so slow. But it's just because they're going uphill again. And yeah. yeah, it's pretty funny to watch the, the splits as uh, they make their way through. Okay. So so uh, they come back to T uh, to transition and it is the same. It's uh, uh, not a point to point race. So it's the same transition. Hand off the bikes, get out on the run and uh, the run course. Now, when I did it, it was a three lap course, but I believe it's now two.
3: It is now two laps. Um, it, you kind of cross over the bridge kind of halfway through the first lap. Um, so it's a really nice course to be able to mentally kind of break up. That first kind of out-and-back section on the near side of the lake, you then cross the bridge and do kind of the same kind of out-and-back on the other side of the lake and then come back over to where transition is and do it all again. Um, It's a pretty kind of flat and rolling course, I'd say, with the exception of one hill Uh, on the back side. It's
0: quite a hill. (laughs) It is quite a
3: hill, and and certainly before the race, I would recommend people just go out and check it out so they're not surprised. Um, it, It is a hill, but I would say it is runnable. Um, yeah. it's definitely not one you need to walk up. You can certainly run up it. Um, yeah. but it hurts a bit, especially on that second lap when you're like at mile 22 or 23 and you hit that hill. It's, it's yeah, a bit I, painful. I was
0: surprised actually on the downhill, uh, cause it's a pretty yeah, steep, it's a steep downhill, downhill and, uh, You're tired on that second one, and you're coming. Well, for me, it was the third one. So coming down the third time, I'm glad it's two laps. You only have to do it (laughs) twice. Uh, Coming down that uh, hill the third time, uh, my legs were tired, and it was tough to sort of you know because you're trying to keep yourself under control, and uh, you're tired. But I will say that once you get down that hill, you know you're in the last like three miles or so. Yeah, two
3: or three miles, I think, after you come down that backside. But yeah, definitely check it out before the race because it's a bit of a surprise compared to the way the rest of the course is. And the run course also has mixed surfaces. Um, A lot of it's concrete, but there is some crushed gravel, which is just, again, nice to kind of break up the the monotony and and ease the legs a little bit.
0: Yeah. And there is, uh, for the concrete part, there's actually a like a gravel sort of thing, Mm -hmm. gravel sort of that people have sort of beaten trail on right next to it. And so I I remember running in that as much as I could. Yeah. Yeah. Aid stations, uh, very well. They're spaced well. They're yeah, well the usual stopped. kind
3: mm-hmm. of once, once a mile is an aid station. So um, yeah, pretty, pretty straightforward and easy.
0: Yeah, and I remember this being a very well supported race. Uh, I remember great crowds along the run course. I remember lots of uh, really great support. Pretty much, even like I mean, there were parts of the run course where you didn't see many people, but. Pretty much all along, there was quite a bit of support. Yeah,
3: there are there is really great support throughout, and I'd say lots of tri-clubs that put up their tents along the course and, and have big parties along the way. So it's definitely a fun place to do a run. Um, the one thing I would caution folks, and something that, that my friends found last year, is spectating can be a little bit of a challenge if they're trying to follow you on the near side and the far side of the lake. And the reason is that there are certain places you have to cross the bike course to get over to the other side of the run, And just with all the bike traffic going through, the spectators would have to wait to cross at those points. So just be aware that if you're trying to move around a lot on the run course, it may take longer than you think it should because you're having to wait at some crossing.
0: So I've done... This, this Ironman Arizona is one of six uh, Ironmans I've done. It's one of 10 that you've done. Is that ten right? 10 or so, yep. And uh, I definitely like this race. It's one that I definitely recommend highly to people. It's not, I mean, if you are trying to get a Kona slot, it's a tough one, right? Because this is where all the people who are coming off Kona, they've taken their six weeks and they show up hoping to qualify. You know?
3: I'd say typically, yes, Um like any Ironman race, it depends year to year and, and the level of competition can certainly fluctuate. Um, Last year was was I would say a weaker year um, in some of the age groups, and it's one of the reasons I ended up going there kind of last minute um, after I didn't qualify at my earlier race to to try and grab a slot at Arizona, and was fortunate to do that. But looking at the start list this year, it certainly yeah. in my age group and in other age groups, it is much more competitive this year. So yeah. I think you're right that a lot of times people will race Kona and then try to carry that fitness through to Arizona to yeah. get a spot for the following year as well.
0: Yeah, but even if you're like even if you're trying to get a slot, even if you're just like a newbie if uh, this is a good race it's uh Of the races, it's known to be fairly fast. The bike course doesn't have a huge amount of elevation gain. The run course is very fair. The temperatures tend to be really reasonable. This is a great race, and uh, I highly recommend it to people. And uh, it's on. I would say it's definitely one of the bucket list races. I would think Uh, you know it's definitely a a race I recommend
3: for sure. And I think just even the the size of the field there is is always really exciting. It's always fun to do a race with lots and lots of other people. And as you mentioned, the spectator support on the run is really good. Um, Maybe not quite as good as, say, Ironman Wisconsin, but definitely better than a lot of the other races in the North America circuit. So certainly one to check out.
0: Yeah. Well, Michelle Hildebrand is a two-time Kona qualifier, multiple 70.3 World Championship qualifier, and is going back to Arizona for the second year in a row to take on this iconic Desert Classic. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me on the Triathlete Routel and on the Tri-Doc Podcast. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Jeff. that's it for another episode of the Tri-Doc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. I hope that you'll check out and subscribe to the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel where periodically over the coming months, you'll find new video content, including a recent uploaded video with a review of the cyclic integrated video camera bicycle lights, the 6 and 12 CEs. My experience over the past several months condensed into about a 27-minute video. Leave a comment, and hopefully you'll subscribe. You can also check out the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, where you can give it a like and a follow. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri-doc at icloud.com, and I hope that you'll consider leaving a rating and a review wherever you download this program. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The Doc Podcast will be back again soon, with another listener question for me to answer, part two of my interview with Elisabeth Sorensen and Beth Leshinsky, and Janetta Iwanake will rejoin me for the first Reels for Wheels segment, heralding a return to long trainer rides over winter. Until then, train hard, train healthy.